0: Please turn with me in your Bible uh, to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you will find our text on page 1006. This is Good Friday. Uh, We look back to that first Good Friday, uh, that Friday before the resurrection a Friday in which Jesus Christ laid down His life and sacrifice upon the cross in fulfillment, not only of the Old Testament promises, but Christ's word, as He had foretold many times, uh, that He was going to Jerusalem, uh, that He would be crucified there, and that then He would rise on the third day. We have read, earlier in the service, one of the Gospel narratives, of Christ's death, about how he was unjustly condemned. Uh, the Jewish leaders uh, condemned Jesus as a blasphemer, and uh, they pressured Pilate uh, to crucify Jesus. Uh, Pilate, for his own self interest, uh, had Jesus crucified, though he did recognize that Jesus had committed no crime uh, worthy of death. We read of how Jesus, the innocent one, the righteous one, the holy one, the godly one, was crucified. How he he suffered uh, the worst form of execution that has ever been invented by man. A form of execution that was designed uh, to impart maximum shame upon the criminal. Jesus was treated as the most vile of criminals yet he voluntarily laid down his life there upon that cross. He had said that no one could take his life from him, but he would lay down his life. We read of the mockery, the suffering that Jesus went through, suffering on multiple levels, and how at the end of that suffering, at the end of bearing the wrath of God, Uh, He said those words, it is finished, and he gave up his spirit. As we bring together the four gospel records, all four gospels give us records of the crucifixion of Jesus. As we bring forth together all four, we have a fuller picture of what Jesus did in laying down his life for us at the cross. Now, what is the significance of Christ's death? His death that was followed by the resurrection and the ascension. There are many people who are gathered in church buildings around the world this evening, remembering Christ's death, who have wrong understandings of the significance of Christ's death. There are some this evening uh, who, as they remember Christ's death, they think of his death essentially as a demonstration of God's love and an example to follow. That is not the substance of what the Bible teaches about the significance of Christ's death. Essentially, a demonstration of God's love for us and and an example for us to to follow in sacrificially loving others. Well, certainly, Christ's death does both of those things. That's not the heart of the significance of His death. There are many others uh, tonight as they remember Christ's death who understand that Christ's death was only part of the work of atonement for our sins. They believe that we need to add to Christ's work. We need to add our own works to Christ's work. Or maybe we need to seek the merit of a saint to be applied to us, to be added to the work of Christ on our behalf. Or they think that after they die, that they in purgatory uh, will suffer for their sins, adding to the sufferings of Christ for them. And those who have this understanding are deadly wrong in their understanding. Grievously wrong, gravely wrong in their understanding of the significance of Christ's death, if they understand it to be only part of the work of atonement for our sins. The Bible reveals the significance of Christ's death. It's not for us to speculate about the significance of Christ's death. It's not for us to form our own theories about the significance of Christ's death. God has revealed to us, In His Holy Word, the significance of Christ's death is for us to listen to the Word of God and to seek to understand the Word of God and to believe the Word of God. It is critical that you have from the Word of God a correct understanding of the significance of Christ's death. The Apostle Paul warned in Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. You see, a correct understanding of Christ's death is necessary for your salvation. And so Paul pronounced a curse upon anyone who would pervert the gospel of Christ into a false gospel that if believed sends one to hell. A correct understanding of Christ's death is necessary for your salvation. It is at the heart of the gospel that we must believe in order to be saved. But the gospel is not only for the unbeliever. The believer must continue to study the truths of Christ's death for these truths of Christ's death are meant to nourish the faith and the soul of God's people. They are to to, to nourish our faith all throughout the Christian life. We don't hear the gospel and then move on from the gospel. Uh, We continue to study the gospel for the strengthening of our faith, the deepening of our faith in our Savior. The passage before us in God's holy word teaches us the significance of Christ's death. And you and I would do well to pay close attention to this glorious passage. I'm going to read to us Hebrews chapter 9 verses 11 through 14. If you are able, please stand in honor of the word of God. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. The book of Hebrews was written to Jews who had professed faith in Jesus Christ, who were being persecuted for their faith, and who appeared to be starting to drift away from Christ back toward the Mosaic Covenant, the old covenant that we find in the Old Testament that God gave through Moses. The book of Hebrews teaches the unmatched supremacy and sufficiency of Christ and His saving work. The book of Hebrews warns against drifting away from Christ and exhorts towards perseverance in the faith. In this context, we have our text. Earlier in chapter 9, the author speaks of the Old Covenant's earthly place of holiness, the tabernacle, which was a a tent that God had instructed the Israelites to, to construct as a dwelling place for God. The author of Hebrews speaks of the first section of that earthly tabernacle, that first section that was called the holy place. The author of Hebrews also goes on to speak of the second section of the tabernacle, which was behind a curtain, and it was called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. The author of Hebrews speaks in this chapter of how only the high priest went into the most holy place, and only once a year, and only with blood offered for himself and for the sins of the people. And the author of Hebrews speaks of how this indicated that the way into the heavenly holy places, of which the earthly tabernacle was just a picture or a copy, how this indicated that the way into the heavenly holy places was not yet opened. Now our text declares the fulfillment of these old covenant realities in Jesus Christ, who has opened the way into the heavenly holy of holies. We're going to see in our text this evening, first of all, Christ's finished work of redemption. And secondly, we will see Christ's cleansing of our conscience. And the Holy Spirit has given us this text so that you and I as believers would appreciate what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and that we would persevere in the faith. First of all, let us see in verses 11 and 12, Christ's finished work of redemption. Take a close look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, That is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places. A high priest represents the people to God. And we're told here that Christ appeared as a high priest, that he appeared as a high priest in the heavenly holy of holies, after offering himself upon the cross and rising from the dead that Christ appeared as the true High Priest who was prefigured by the High Priest in the Old Covenant. We read in our text that Christ appeared as a High Priest of the good things that have come. That is, the good things that were foreshadowed and promised in the Old Testament and which Christ won for His people at the cross. Christ appeared as a High Priest of these good things that have come that is the blessings of the new covenant which would include the purification of our conscience that is spoken of in verse 14 we read here that christ entered the holy the heavenly holy places through the greater and more perfect tent that is through the heavenly counterpart to the earthly tabernacle's first section the earthly tabernacle was made by human hands at God's instruction there at Mount Sinai. The earthly tabernacle was part of the earthly creation. But we read here in Hebrews that Christ entered the holy places through a greater tent, a greater tent in the heavens. And that Christ entered the heavenly holy of holies once for all. Now in the old covenant, the high priest entered every year. But Christ entered, the heavenly holy of holies, once for all time. Because at the cross, he truly and completely atoned for all the sins of all his people. We read in verse 12 that he entered once for all time into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Under the old covenant, The one day in the year when the high priest was to enter the Holy of Holies was the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus 16, you can find the instructions that God gave for the Day of Atonement. The high priest was required to present a bull as a sin offering for himself. He was then to take some of the blood from that bull take some of that blood into the Holy of Holies. He would go through the curtain into the Holy of Holies, where he could only go once a year. He would bring the blood from the bowl into the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. That was the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. This box that was plated with gold that contained the covenant that God had made with Israel at Sinai. The high priest would take that blood from the bowl that had been offered for his sin and he would sprinkle it there on the mercy seat. It was above the mercy seat where God manifested his glory. He dwelled above the mercy seat, this this place of atonement, this place of propitiation. There the priest sprinkled the blood of the bowl that was sacrificed for the high priest's sin then he would come out of the Holy holy of Holies and he was to sacrifice a goat. He was to sacrifice a goat as a sin offering for the people. And take the blood from the goat and go with that through the curtain into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle some of that, that blood that had been shed for the sins of the people. Sprinkle that as well on the mercy seat in the presence of God above the copy of the covenant covenant that God had written with his own finger. In this way, the high priest made atonement for himself and for the people. And so it can be said that in the old covenant, the high priests entered the Holy of Holies by means of the blood of goats and calves. However, it was not by means of such blood that Christ entered the heavenly holy of holies. We read here in Hebrews that he entered the heavenly holy places by means of his own blood. Now, this does not mean that Christ carried his shed blood into heaven, as the Revised Standard Version uh, suggests. That translation speaks here of Christ taking the blood that he had shed, His own blood, taking that into the holy places. But that's not what the original language means. And that's not how it's translated in good translations like the ESV that I am preaching from. Christ did not carry His shed blood into heaven. For we read in John 19, verse 30, that upon the cross, just before Jesus gave up His spirit, He said, It is finished he bowed his head and gave up his spirit he finished the work of atonement there upon the cross there was no more atonement to be made in heaven what this does mean as you look at our our text that christ entered by means of his own blood it means that christ entered the heavenly holy of holies as our high priest by virtue of his sacrificial death Under the Old Covenant, the high priest entered by means of the blood of an animal that had been sacrificed involuntarily. None of the animals voluntarily laid down their lives. In contrast, our high priest voluntarily laid down his own life in sacrificial death in obedience to the Father. And by virtue of his infinitely greater sacrifice, Christ entered once for all into the heavenly holy places as our high priest. Verse 12 goes on and says, Thus securing an eternal redemption. Or the New American Standard translates those words, Having obtained eternal redemption. Christ entered into the heavenly holy of holies having obtained eternal redemption. What is redemption? Redemption is the work of setting one free by the payment of a price. Now, what was the price that Christ paid? It was his precious blood that he shed in sacrificial death. And from what did Christ redeem us? We'll go on to verse 15. It tells us, Verse 15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Christ's death redeems from transgressions. At the cross, Christ redeemed us from our Sins. He set us free from our sins. He freed us from our sins by the payment of the highest of prices, His precious blood. And at the cross, we read here in Hebrews that Christ obtained eternal redemption, meaning that the effects of this redemption are eternal, meaning that this redemption is valid for all eternity. In the Old Covenant, the high priest made atonement year after year. But not our high priest. His death was the perfect sacrifice for sin, obtaining eternal redemption. Nothing needed to be added to it. It didn't need to be repeated. He obtained eternal redemption for his people. Therefore, Christ entered into the holy places... Not as the high priests in the Old Covenant did in a solemn state. On the Day of Atonement, the high priests and the rest of the nation were to afflict themselves. Meaning to to fast. It was a day of mourning over the sins that they had committed. But what attitude does Hebrews 12 verse 2 indicate Christ had as he entered into the holy places? He entered with joy. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross. He entered into that joy as he finished the work and as he entered into the heavenly holy of holies. Our text here in Hebrews speaks of a triumphant entrance into the heavenly holy of holies. For Christ had succeeded in securing an eternal redemption. Right now, as we are gathered here, Christ is in the heavenly holy of holies, at the right hand of the Father, as our high priest, as our representative, who secured at the cross for us an eternal redemption. This gives us as believers (coughs) reason uh, to sing Christ's praises forever and ever. (coughs) Excuse me. The old covenant showed your need for such a redemption. The old covenant showed my need for such a redemption. And the New Testament reveals Christ as the one who has met our great need. Now, what does this mean personally for us as believers? We see in the second section of our text what this means personally for us as believers. As we see in verses 13 and 14, Christ's cleansing of our conscience. Christ's cleansing of our conscience. Look with me at verse 13. In these verses, the author of Hebrews is arguing from the lesser to the greater. The lesser is the blood of sacrificial animals and its effects under the old covenant. And the greater is the blood of Christ and its effects under the new covenant. The author speaks in verse 13 of the blood of goats and bulls along with, quote, the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer. Now, if you're familiar with Numbers chapter 19, then you'll understand what he's talking about. Let me refresh your memory. There are instructions for this in Numbers 19, for the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer. A heifer is a, a young cow that has not borne a calf. And the high priest was instructed to uh, take a red heifer without defect and have it killed as a sin offering. Then the high priest was to sprinkle some of the blood from the heifer on the tabernacle. Then the carcass was to be burned and the ashes from the heifer collected and stored in a clean place. The ashes were then to be added to water and this mixture of ashes and water was to be used for cleansing those defiled by a dead body. You see, there were these laws under the Mosaic Covenant for clean and unclean. There are various things that God declared made a person ceremonially unclean. If an Israelite touched a dead body, as was necessary in preparing a body for burial, or even if an Israelite was in a tent where a dead body was lying, or or touched a grave, then that person would be ceremonially unclean for seven days. When you were ceremonially unclean, you could not approach the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the place of worship. That's where God manifested His presence, manifested His glory. That is where you went to worship God. But if you were ceremonially unclean, you were not permitted to approach the tabernacle. You were not permitted to approach God's dwelling place. You were not permitted to dwell, to approach this place of God's worship. If you came in contact with death, you were unclean for seven days. When you were ceremonially unclean, you could not approach the tabernacle, as I, I said. The, the person was to cleanse himself on the third day and on the seventh day with the mixture that had been created from the heifer's ashes. That mixture of ashes and water. That was to be sprinkled on you on the third day and again on the seventh day to cleanse you so that you could once again approach God's earthly dwelling place. So you were cleansed by these ashes which came from the sacrificial heifer. His blood had been shed. His blood had been sprinkled on the tabernacle. The ashes from that were to be sprinkled on you with water to cleanse you from your ceremonially uncleanness so you could approach God You can approach the place of worship. Our text refers to this when it speaks about the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer. Hebrews 9.13 says that under the old covenant, the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. To sanctify means to make holy. sacrificial blood and ashes made a person holy, ceremonially. They purified the flesh, meaning the body. An Israelite became ceremonially unclean, not only through contact with a dead body, but also through physical contact with other things that God declared unclean. For example, if someone contracted leprosy, they were ceremonially unclean. Physical contact with the unclean cut you off from fellowship with God in the sense of approaching God's earthly dwelling place and worshiping in God's presence. You were cut off, in that sense, from fellowship with God. But when the sacrificial death of an animal, whether a goat or a bull or the heifer, when the sacrificial death of an animal was applied to the unclean person in the manner that was prescribed by God, that person was made clean and this fellowship with God was restored. It was a picture. It was a type. It was teaching a lesson. Pay close attention to the author's point now in verses 13 to 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There is no comparison between the blood of sacrificial animals and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Animals are not moral creatures, nor are they made in the image of God as man is. Animals are not fit to take the place of man who is answerable to God for his conduct and is morally defiled at the deep center of his being. Animals are not fit to take our place. But Christ is the incarnate Son of God. The eternal Son of God. The second person of the triune God who became flesh. He is a moral being and is supremely holy. Before his incarnation, the, the angels were around him saying, Holy, holy, holy. And they couldn't even look at Christ because they, they knew they were unworthy to look at the Son of God as created beings. And so they covered their face and they, they, they covered their feet. They said, Holy, holy, holy. As the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. Ascribing that to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Son became flesh. Supremely holy. The God-man. He became one of us through the virgin conception. He is very God of very God. And His offering of Himself upon the cross was the culmination of a life of perfect obedience to the Father. There's no comparison between the blood of bulls and goats on the one hand and the blood of Christ on the other. Through the, we read here in Hebrews that through the Holy Spirit, who came upon Christ at His baptism and anointed Christ's ministry, we read that through the Holy Spirit, Christ offered Himself without blemish to God. He offered himself to God. You see, God rightly demands righteousness and uprightness from us. As human beings whom he has made in his image. He rightly demands from us righteousness, uprightness. Because we have failed in this, transgressing God's law, God justly requires our death. As we read in Romans chapter 6 verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but death in all of its senses, including an eternal death. But Christ offered himself to God as our substitute, suffering the penalty that God's justice demands. We should have paid the penalty. But Jesus offered himself to God as our substitute, paying the penalty that, that we, that was due to us, Now, such a sacrifice to God must be without blemish, as the Old Testament made clear. Every sacrificial animal had to be without blemish, without defect. It couldn't have a broken bone. uh, It it couldn't have a, a spot on it. No kind of defect or blemish. Teaching that the sacrifice that would be acceptable to God, had to be without blemish or defect. And we read here in Hebrews that Christ offered Himself without blemish. Without any inward blemish. Without any stain of sin. This is not talking about physically. With, with the animals, it was physical blemish that was not allowed. With Christ, it's, there's, there's no inward blemish. There's no stain of sin. There's no guilt. Isaiah 53 verse 9 prophesied Christ's death and resurrection. And it says of Christ here, Isaiah 53 9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. 700 years before Jesus came to this world. His death and resurrection were prophesied. And what was said of Christ is that he would be the Lord's servant and that he would be treated as a criminal although he had done no violence. That's speaking of actions. Though he would be righteous in his actions, holy in his actions, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Talking about his speech. So both his actions and his speech would be absolutely holy and righteous. Christ offered himself as one who was perfect in holiness and righteousness. Through and through, he offered himself without blemish to God. To God who requires absolute perfection. Our text is saying, If the blood of mere goats and bulls, which was just a shadow of what was to come, purified the flesh. How much more does the true substance, that is the blood of Jesus Christ, the Holy One, purify the soul? We read in verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The Lord Jesus Christ before He went to the cross, taught about our need to be cleansed from inner moral impurity. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 7, the Gospel of Mark chapter 7. Beginning at verse 1, Jesus has been observed by the Pharisees who were really good about outward righteousness, but had no inward righteousness. In chapter 7, we read verse 1, Now when the Pharisees gathered to Jesus with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus applied these words of Isaiah uh, to these scribes and Pharisees. These words that speak of the hearts of the Israelites being far from God. Go down to verse 14. Verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. That has to do with the ceremonial from the Old Covenant. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus' teaching here is clear that our heart is morally corrupt. And that the things that issue from our corrupt heart are what truly defile us. Whether it be evil thoughts, whether it be impure attitudes, whether it be sinful words, whether it be wicked actions. All those categories are represented in the list that Jesus gives. The things that come out of our corrupt heart that defile us. The laws about clean and unclean in the Old Testament were teaching a lesson. And they're pointing to this. Jesus said, This is what truly defiles, not the pork. Not touching a dead body, this is what defiles. Defiles your heart, defiles your soul, defiles your conscience. And brothers and sisters, and my friends, this is why you and I need Christ. And the good news of our text is that the blood of Christ has purified the believer's conscience from dead works. You can turn back to Hebrews chapter 9 the assumption here in hebrews 9 verse 14 how much more will the blood of christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to god purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living god the assumption here is that the person whose conscience is purified from dead works repents of those dead works for back in chapter 6 verse 1 We read, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. That has already been taught, that was understood. Those here in verse 14, whose consciences are purified by the blood of Christ, they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They repent of their dead works. They trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. What are dead works? We read here that Christ's blood purifies the conscience from dead works. What are dead works? Dead works are those practices and attitudes which belong to the way of death. They're the sorts of things that proceed from the heart of someone who is dead toward God. They are the sorts of attitudes, words, and actions that lead to eternal death. They are the works that pollute the soul, that alienate a person from God, that incur divine judgment. The sinner who repents of his dead works and believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior can know that the blood of Christ has purified his conscience from his dead works. You see, God has created you with a conscience. And your conscience confronts you with the holiness of God. Romans 2.15 teaches that your conscience works together with the law of God that He wrote on your heart to accuse you when you break God's law and to give approval when you obey God's law. Now, while we may sear our conscience or deaden our conscience or misinform our conscience to some degree, the conscience still stands as a witness against us as sinners. In Romans chapter 1 after Paul gave a list of sins committed by those who do not know the Scriptures, he wrote in chapter 1, verse 32, Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You see, the unbeliever's conscience tells him that he is guilty of sin and that he deserves to die for his sin. Yet the unregenerate person disregards it in unrighteousness. Therefore, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 says that we formerly had, quote, an evil conscience. Yet I want you to see what chapter 10, verses 19 to 22 say that God has done with our evil conscience. Look at chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers... This is the purification that is spoken of in our text. When it says in verse 22, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Our bodies washed with pure water. This is the purifying in our text that is done by the blood of Christ. Our text again, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience, purify that evil conscience from dead works to serve the living God. When you first repented of your sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, God in His great grace and mercy applied the finished work of Christ to your soul. Washing away the guilt of all of your sin, past, present, and future. Forgiving you of all of your sin. Declaring you righteous in His sight. So that your conscience no longer has a just cause to condemn you. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Yet, if we stopped here with purification, we would not have a correct understanding of salvation. I want you to observe the rest in verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is the purpose of our redemption, that we would serve the living God. By Christ's death, we have been set free from what is dead in order to serve the one who is living. We have been purified from works that kill and destroy to serve a God who is personal, who has life in Himself, and who has given us life. You see, redemption does not end with man, but it ends with God. In fact, it both begins and ends with God. Christ did not redeem you at the cross simply so that you would have a clean Conscience, the forgiveness of sins, an entrance into heaven and salvation from hell. Redemption doesn't end with you. Redemption ends with God. He redeems you so that, as His redeemed one, you would serve Him, the living God. He redeems you so that you will bring glory to Him god is the end of redemption john calvin in commenting on these verses said quote we are not cleansed by christ so that we can immerse ourselves continually in fresh dirt but in order that our purity may serve the glory of god brothers and sisters Is there anyone or anything else that can do for you what this text says Christ has done for you? At the cross, Christ secured your eternal redemption. And then he entered once for all time into the holy places as your high priest. When you repented of your dead works and believed in him, his blood purified your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You went from being guilty before God to being not guilty. From being under God's condemnation to having a righteous standing before God by grace. Is there anyone or anything else that can do this for you? Only Christ, the Son of God incarnate. You could never do this for yourself. The law cannot do this for you. Your parent cannot do this for you. A friend or relative cannot do this for you. A saint cannot do this for you. The church cannot do this for you. Another religion cannot do this for you. The Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect Savior. He is the one and only perfect Savior. And the redemption that He accomplished is perfect. He is worth dying for. As many believers throughout church history have done including Polycarp. Polycarp's parents were saved after hearing the preaching of the Apostle John. Polycarp was trained in the Word of God by his parents. He believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And after serving Christ for 86 years, he was arrested by the Roman government for promoting Christianity. The police captain tried to persuade Polycarp to call Caesar Lord, but Polycarp refused because there was only one Lord, Jesus Christ. The police captain took Polycarp into the arena to stand before the proconsul, and the proconsul tried to persuade Polycarp to deny Christ, saying to him, revile Christ and I will let you go. But Polycarp famously replied, for 86 years... I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Upon saying this, Polycarp was sent to seal his testimony through the death of a martyr burned at the stake. As Polycarp knew, Christ is the perfect Savior worth dying for, worth suffering for, and worth living for. Brothers and sisters, when you experience condemning thoughts and you know that you have repented of your sin and are believing in Christ as your Lord and Savior, remind yourself of the glorious truths of the text that we have studied this evening. Christ redeemed you at the cross. He ever lives as your high priest before God. His blood has purified your conscience from dead works to serve the living God as we trust the gospel of Christ, here in this passage and in other passages, the gospel of Christ dispels thoughts of our guilt and turns those thoughts into thoughts of gratitude to the Lord Jesus Christ and praise of the Lord Jesus Christ and praise of the Father who sent His Son and planned such a great eternal redemption. Now, this does not mean that the conscience of a believer should not convict him of sin. We we read here that Christ's blood has purified our conscience from dead works. This does not mean that the conscience of a believer should not convict him of sin. Our conscience should convict us of sin when we sin. But, our passage does mean that the conviction of the Holy Spirit is not to be associated with the divine condemnation which we were under before being saved. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the blood of Christ has purified our conscience. Our text does mean that the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes from a God who loves us who has accepted us as His own, who is for us, and who is committed to making us holy as He is holy. Our text means that we can confess our sin to Him with confidence in His grace and mercy as one whose conscience has been purified by the blood of Christ. Brothers and sisters, in view of the truths in our text, may we greatly appreciate Christ and all that we have received in Christ. And may we persevere in the faith, serving our living Redeemer. Now, in a group this size, not everyone has been saved. And so let me ask you, if you are hearing my voice, let me ask you, has the blood of Christ purified your conscience from dead works To serve the living God. In other words, has Christ saved you? If not, I urge you, my friend, to come to Christ tonight in repentance of sin. That is confession of sin to God. Forsaking your sin. Turning from your sin to the Lord Jesus Christ. I urge you to come to Christ in repentance of sin. Believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord, believing in him as your Savior. The Bible says in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That is the promise of the living God, who never lies. That is the promise of the living God who is always faithful to his word. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, we have a glorious Savior. May we not drift from our Savior. May we not fall away from our Savior. But may we cling to our Savior. May we love our Savior. May we worship our Savior. Knowing that His person and His work are incomparable. And His work is sufficient. His work is finished. His work was an eternal redemption. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father. We could have never even imagined such a glorious salvation as the salvation that you planned for us before the foundation of the world. In sending your beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to offer Himself without spot or anything blameworthy to offer himself to you in sacrificial death on our behalf, to redeem us, to set us free from sin. We were enslaved to sin. We were enslaved to sin's penalty. There was nothing that we could do to free ourselves from the condemnation that we deserve from you, the judgment we deserve from you for our sins against you, a holy God. We were helpless in our sin. But what we could not do for ourselves, you have done so gloriously in the Lord Jesus Christ, obtaining through Christ's death an eternal redemption. We thank you for the purification of our evil conscience, the purification of our conscience from evil works to now serve you, the living God, our Savior. Oh, Lord, enable us to share this good news with others. We pray, Father, that you would save others through this glorious gospel. And we pray, Father, that... That you would remind us to hold fast to Christ, knowing who he is and what he has done for our soul. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.